Hey everybody, this is Pete Worrell, and I want to welcome you to this week's episode of the Positive Enterprise Value Podcast. Here, we share personal, unscripted, unedited interviews with some of the most incredible people in the world, seasoned, successful, high-performing entrepreneurs, both from the for-profit and from the not-for-profit sector. We talk about how they view and how they successfully deal with the chapters in their lives, the arc of their careers, and the life arc of their enterprises. The reason we do that is because most high-performing people leave clues, breadcrumbs in the forest, if you will, that we can learn from and follow if we pay close attention. Often with for-profit entrepreneurs, we focus a little bit on how they built enterprise value and personal legacy and how they then capture it in a capital gain and what they're doing in the following interesting chapters of their lives. You can find additional podcasts and other immediately useful resources for EOMs at our website, BigelowLLC.com. In this week's episode, we have an incredible rich learning opportunity for you because more than our usual single interview, we actually have a panel of high-performing entrepreneurs who speak incredibly candidly about their businesses, their lives, their successes, their failures, and most importantly for you and me, what they would do differently if they had the chance, knowing what they know now. They represent a wide variety of industries and varying time frames since they had their capital gain transaction. This panel discussion was recorded live at this year's annual Bigelow Forum, an event which was held in September 2018. The panel was the brainchild of, and as you'll hear, masterfully guided and moderated by my partner, Stephen McGee. The entrepreneur panelists include Allison Hooper, the co-founder and former co-owner of Vermont Creamery, one of the most successful artisanal cheese producers in North America. It was successfully acquired by Land O'Lakes, a $14 billion farmer-owned cooperative, 18 months ago. You'll hear Allison wonder aloud about our society's lack of understanding about entrepreneurs' personal identity post-transaction. Chet Jordan was the co-founder and co-owner of Digital Architecture, one of the first players in the digitization of higher education solutions. DigArc was successfully recapitalized by West Coast private equity investor Serent Capital, and Chet and his partner Ken Blaze continue as minority owners of DigArc. Chet talks about why he and Ken decided not to add to their management team's pre-capital gain transaction and how that worked out great for them. Jay Jacobs is the founder and former owner of Rapid Manufacturing, a company completely focused on using digital technology in manufacturing parts. It is one of the fastest sources of prototype parts in the world. Rapid was acquired by Proto Labs, a Minnesota-based public company, which most informed people would say is the leader in digital manufacturing worldwide. Among other things, Jay comments on how transitioning his role and title in the time before a capital gain transaction was incredibly helpful to him. And Mike Trigilio, the former owner of Associated Home Care, which is the leading provider of personal in-the-home health care in the northeast part of North America. It was acquired by Amedesis, a public company in Baton Rouge. Interestingly, Mike and the Associated Home Care management team have led the home health care business segment for Amedesis for the last almost three years. You will hear him comment on his very unique perspective of a successful entrepreneur and successful operating executive of a public company. Pretty unusual combination, right? 
Positive Enterprise Value podcast listeners might notice that both Allison, Jay, and Mike have all been interviewed individually on the podcast. Chet, you're next. As some listeners might guess, I actually personally know all of these super entrepreneurs pretty well, yet I learned just a massive amount from the panel, their interactions with one another, and with Stephen. I belly laughed aloud a couple of times, and I had an emotional catch in my throat at other times, hearing a few of the stories of their personal lives. The live audience loved it. I did too. I hope you will too. Here they are. So we don't have any batting order. We don't have any prepared questions. So it's like a Quaker meeting. When your spirit moves you, just go for it, okay? Um, okay. <laughs> so let's just go around the horn on this, though. How, how old was the company when you started on the process of thinking about that capital gain event? Well, thinking about it, I guess we were um, about 32 years into the business. 32 years? Honestly, I think for myself in the business, my partner might have been a little different, but on employee number one, I was thinking about a capital gain event. <laughs> okay, interesting. We'll come back to that. Jay? I had a time frame when I was thinking I wanted to exit, and it happened earlier, and the happening earlier was about 16 years. It, it would have been about 18 years if it had gone as planned. Say our business was 23, 24 years old when, you know, about three or four years before, before we sold. Okay. Hmm. So let's come back to comments, Chet and Jay, you made there, which is was kind of my next question anyway. I want to use the word intention. Do, do, do you think you were very intentional about ha having a capital gain event right from the get-go, employee number one, your your 18-year timeline? Do you want to talk a bit more about that? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, when I started out, I had a vision like I'm sure everyone has here when they start their business. And I figured if I got up to $5 million in sale, I mission accomplished, I'd created a nice lifestyle business, I could work less, I'd have a good income and enjoy life. And things went a little differently from that. Um, but that, that was my initial mm. when I started the company. And, I, and I, if, I, if I recall, though, you, you, your intention was to build rapid to ultimately not own it forever, though. Correct. My goal was when my youngest graduated from high school, that's when I would want to exit the company. To be more accurate in my response, when we started it, obviously you have a lot more considerations, especially when you're bootstrapping from zero situation, but I think uh, two things happen. One is that in a past uh, business I was involved in, I, I ran into a fellow that did, was involved in technology company, and he uh, asked him a question because he had exited it, and I said, what would you have done differently? And his response to me, uh, I took to heart for, for the rest of my involvement with uh, Didjark, which was, if I had to do it again, every decision we made, a business decision that we made, I would have a seat at the table that was advocating for what does this do for our valuation, what does it do for the company's value, as well as the business decision at hand. Sometimes it would not prevail because you obviously have to be tactical in your, in your operations, but generally speaking, it does kind of shape how you think of it. Now, that being said, uh, I didn't know what I didn't know 
for this type of an event that I engaged Bigelow for, and I learned that there were a few things that I wish I could have a do-over on in terms of the specifics, the esoteric nature of being in a software company and how the valuation of software companies are done, mm -hmm. which were naive. My background did not inform that. And so I, I think that a lot of that, in hindsight, is that I sh probably should have engaged uh, someone like Bigelow as an advisor earlier on and maybe taken a little bit more risk with some of those decisions. But um, as I went through the, the M&A process with, uh, with our current uh, uh, you know, majority owner of the company, an investor, they, uh, they pointed out to me that even if that's the case, they thought that I did everything that I should have done when I did them and for the right reasons. Right. So, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah. Every decision you made at the time you made the decision yeah. was the best decision. Was the best. Yeah, I, I think there's a risk um, in thinking about your business um, and a capital gain event very early on for, for that very reason, because I know in our situation, had we been thinking about valuation and EBITDA and, um, very early on, we would have made very, very different decisions and had a completely different business that maybe we would have gotten bored with or, you know, we made decisions based on what we wanted to create and what we wanted, who we wanted to be as a brand. And um, that, at the end of the day, I think really was what created the value for the company. And I agree with what Allison says, but they're not mutually exclusive in my no. book. Because in order to create a good, the best valuation you're going to get is by creating a good brand. And sometimes some of those things are deferred. You're not, you're not operating month to month, quarter to quarter, even though you mm. have to keep your eyes on that because you have to keep the payroll paid. But um, in terms of, you know, you, you want to make sure that all the stakeholders have uh, been treated right in that situation. You want to, so our company, right from the get-go, like you were just saying, is that we want to make sure that the employees are treated right, the customers were treated the way we'd want to be treated, and we had, we had an ethic and a, mm -hmm. and a uh, sort of a, uh, an image of what it was this company should be eventually. But uh, both Ken and I uh, also had a belief that what followed from that was going to be of value and that we would gain customer market share and everything from reputation and that would then turn into a very profitable enterprise. But that's why I was saying earlier, it's, it's not that you're going to tactically say every day I get up I'm going to think about how this impacts my valuation, but you're going to realize that at some point in time some of those decisions that you make will eventually have to, you know, if you're looking at that as an end result, because so many, I think, of the people that I've, I've, uh, I've known over the years, they get there by default, and they don't really think about it. Uh, yep. well, what, what exactly am I doing this for? Yep. And so then one day they wake up and say, I don't want to do this forever. What am I going to do with this now? Yep. And so I think having someone at the table that kind of advocates for, yeah, well, that's good, and you should have all of these other ethics involved, but really it is a business. And if you don't care about that, fine, but be honest with yourself and the people around you about what that means. Yep. Uh, so. I thought it was interesting, in both of your podcast interviews, Jay and Allison, you, you talked about the concept of making investments in the company like you're going to own it forever. Mm -hmm. Don't be cheap, I think was, was a phrase mm -hmm. you used, Jay. But Mike, you mean you, you, you've gone through a transaction two and a half years ago, you're still in the thick of it, right, with the, with the new owners. Um, do you think about that the same way and you look back on the, the way you were building the company or was the transaction a kind of a way to keep doing more investments in some respects? Yeah, I think, I think the key for me was, you know, I was a real big, I was one of those super risk takers early on. And, um, you know, you don't have a lot to lose. You, you're willing to gamble mm -hmm. a whole lot. Pete's, Pete's yeah, uh, on the far left, right. Yeah. And that's really what built that company. And uh, so as, as we became more and more successful, you started realizing, 
oof, we can't be that company that we were because yeah. it's getting kind of scary. Mm -hmm. And um, so for me, I kind of I, I ramped it up quickly. And then once we realized the, the value of what we were building, it was all about trying to preserve it and making sure that you know some strike of a pen and some some uh, some law change doesn't change our evaluation instantly. So, for me, it, it just once we once we realized it was a sizable business that we could execute a transaction on and potentially still stay on and, and continue to build it. That was once we once we thought about that. That that became okay. Can we can I just wake up tomorrow and have this done? Which was close to that, but it wasn't quite. Uh, yeah. So th there's, um, it's interesting because Allison, I think you know, you talked about uh, the authenticity and the clunkiness of being a, an entrepreneur and building Vermont Creamery was was part of the value, part of the charm, part of the the, the, the authentic uh, brand that you built, uh, and I and you know nothing slick about it, right? Mm -hmm. But but is is there a feeling though? Chad, to your point about you know things that you wish you'd done, and Jay, I think you've talked about this in the past too. Like if only I'd had a couple of years or months to couple prepare the million. company. Just a couple. Couple more million, maybe. <laughs> maybe a little more working maybe, capital. Maybe this preparation idea though leads to that, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, Jay, I think you talked about uh, things I did as a, as an EOM, the way I ran my company. You know, the investors perceived it as risky. Want to talk about that? Well. I'm not sure exactly what you're relating to, but there were a couple things I did that definitely created friction in the transaction, and I'm glad I did them, but I should have managed it back into the company in a way that looked better to the acquirer so that they didn't have to ask as many questions and feel uncomfortable. And specifically what I mean by that is I created a lot of IP, patent applications and patents, I put it in a separate company in Nevada for a variety of reasons, but one of the reasons was a lot of the IP didn't relate to the company, but I knew that if it was contained within Rapid, it would go along for the sale at no additional value. Um, so they were probably rightfully fearful that some of the IP that I was holding back would relate to the company. Um, the other is I had started a company in 2017 and they were quite entangled with Rapid and th that was fine. It, it, you know, I was the primary owner of both, so that's the way we operated. But I still wanted to continue with paperless parts after the sale and if I had structured that differently before we had to present it to the acquirer, it would have taken a lot of the friction away. Hmm. It cost me a lot in legal fees and emotion. <laughs> Which you manage very well. With your help. <laughs> uh, Chet, you mentioned something about having an N of one kind of in terms of speaking to somebody who had been through the process. Talk to me a bit about, did, did you have an N of anything in, in terms of knowledge or, or, or other people who'd been through a process that you talked to before you did this? In, you mean like the way we're doing now? Or? Yeah, I mean. Um, well, I had a Vistage group. Okay. And so, you know, we, there's always a lot of discussion among um, founders about um, these types of transitions. Do I, do I keep it? Do I give it to my kids? Do I, you know, there's, that's, con that's a constant noise in the room all the time. 
And would you hear the same level of opposing views as, as, as Rob highlighted in the survey? Would there be a Mary and a Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Interesting. How about you guys? I, I, I had been on the buy side a few times, but I really had never um, experienced, I had really didn't have any, any kind of understanding at how emotionally draining that process was going to be. Um, so very grateful for having a, a great coordinated team to kind of coach through it um, because it, it, it is shocking how, how exhausting it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the part that I, I just didn't recognize going into it. Uh, I think I'm still tired. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. I sound tired. Um, so, yeah. so would that be, um, when you think back to the, the, the survey data, uh, was that something that we didn't even have in our survey, the, the, this, this concept of how, how much work is involved? Yeah, I, I, I think it is. I think if you do it right, if you do it the way that, that your team coaches us to do it, there's, one, there's, there's not six right ways. It, it really has to be this kind of prepare, prepare, prepare. And uh, you always feel like you're the smartest one in the room. And if you have that... That's Rob. <laughs> well, of course it is. Where is he? Of course it's always Rob. But uh, he'll tell you that, yes. <laughs> but, I mean, we joked. But, I mean, we, we, you know, him and Warren could have run our... He's, they could be running Associated Home Care right now. It's, he thinks he have is. a good little gig going. You never know. He thinks he's a farmer, too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you never know. This is right. I'm going to throw these away. Yeah, yeah. Hey, How hey, about him? Hey, Rob, I told you this would happen. <laughs> <laughs> we did have fun, though. It was fun. Good, good. So, um, so if we put you on the spot and ask you, what were the most important things to you then? Let's, let's dig it a bit into the survey aspects of this. What was the most important thing for you? Well, there, that's a two-part question, right? So you, you ask, at what point? Okay. So um, in the survey, at the time of the transaction or when you're getting prepared for this and thinking about it, what is the most important? And for me, it was really about legacy and the brand. And I think what's different up here um, among us is that we had a consumer brand, have a consumer brand. So there was, I felt there was a lot at stake um, from the point of view of our customers, our uh, um, so many social media fans, um, customers, distributor customers, consumer customers, their perception of this darling, pioneering, artisanal brand um, that stood for mission, values, authenticity, selling to an agribusiness company. I mean, it was so counter to what people thought of our company. And so my concern was that you know, our employees were taking care of the farmers, our customers, and really our brand in the mind of our consumers. Yeah. Did, did that factor in then when you, when you think about the qualitative assessment of a potential new majority owner versus just the pure economics? Or is that difficult to, to weigh if the economics get kind of crazy? Well, the economics got a little crazy right, because... So. Um, Land O'Lakes, um, their offer was far and away yep. more than the others who we thought were going to be the, um, the eventual owners. We sort of in, had sort of planned for this 
you know, whether it was a Swiss company or a French company who had much, were far more aligned with what we do every day, understood what we did every day. But yeah, the economics got, they were right there. Yep. <laughs> and um, there wasn't really any arguing that. And so we sort of had to fit a square peg in, in a round hole by sort of saying, okay, so here's a company that doesn't sell to millennials. That's our target market. That's why they like us. But um, is that integration, is it, are we so far apart? Um, is that cultural integration and brand integration going to work? And that was terrifying. Yeah. But oftentimes, I'm sure that's, that's, the, that's the, the very reason they are where they are in economics, because they don't do what you do, right? Mm -hmm. any, any, any other thoughts on, on that? What, what was most important, yeah. I'll answer it in a roundabout way. And I am a member of Strategic Coach, which is a organization that coaches high growth entrepreneur owner managers. And they have a tool called an impact filter, which can be used in a variety of ways. But essentially, it is what has to be true for this to be successful. And I have a mentor in coach, and he said, well, have you written one about selling your business, Jay? I was like, duh, no, I haven't. So I created a impact filter that said, what has to be true for me to be happy the day after the sale? Mm -hmm. And spent a few weeks on that. And what I came up with was actually eight items. They crossed the list that you put up there, and essentially, they became my non-negotiables. I had this single sheet of paper printed out, kept in my wallet, and at times at the transaction, I would refer back to it. In, in one case, the one of my non-negotiables, my important items, was something that the acquirer wouldn't accept. So I walked away from the sale to, I think, their surprise. Mine too. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I knew I wouldn't be happy, and, and I was comfortable with that. But three days later, they came back and said, okay, we'll, we'll accept that. And, uh, but I have to say, because I did that, the day after the sale, I was happy, and I don't have any regrets because I was able to achieve what was important for me. Looking back at the question being what was important, I, I'm going to start with what kind of motivated us to even start thinking now was the time to start thinking about an exit. And I think that uh, one of the things that always kind of I found interesting about owning businesses and owning this business was uh, it, it speaks to you if you listen in, in all the creeks and all the stresses and all the things that start increasing in volume, this department, that department, all the, the weak links in the chain of delivering your products and your services started developing a pattern and it, it occurred to me that um, we were at another one of those junctions where we had to figure out if we we're going to double down to get to the next level of growth or not. And that was kind of initially the, the, the conversation starter for us. We started realizing that we're going to have to start responding to the market a little differently. And we, we felt that intuitively, but we, uh, when Rob and the Bigelow process started being uh, employed, and demonstrating what the market was and where it was going, it became from 
boy, this is a little stressful to terrifying because we saw that uh, there was a tsunami uh, and it, it either was going to swamp us and pass us by and we were not going to be able to respond to the market and capitalize on the opportunity or, or that. So we had to really do a, a gut check on that. So the initial fear then translates into what do you want in a partner to, to, uh, to, to meet those goals. So we uh, really started out looking, can we find the right um, skill sets? Money is important, obviously, valuation is, drives the whole thing, right? But we really wanted some expertise in those things that we knew we didn't possess, and we were either going to have to really start changing our lifestyle to, to get there or find somebody that already had been there, done it, that could bring us to the next level in that. And so all the other things are important, which is our, our we were very uh, concerned about our clients, you know, and, and our reputation and a very niche market, higher education, things travel fast in a small market like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we were really um, terrified. So the process then became uh, more clearer in terms of what it is that we're looking for, at least from a a point of view of what skills and what, what can somebody bring to the table as a majority owner uh, to, to continue the legacy, to, to bring this thing that you have invested in. As much as we can say, well, I'm going to be separate and objective about it, you, you, uh, you put too much of your blood, sweat, and tears into it not to care, be that callous about it. You really want to see what's, what you have done, what's, what's it capable of doing out there in the universe once you have exited from it. You know, where does this go? In, uh, 20, 30 years when I can look back at it. And it's already happening now, even in two years, that, that we're just little artifacts on the side. Oh, they're the founders, they're cute, aren't they? You know? uh, but uh, so I think that, that that was a very important uh, criteria for us uh, in, in trying to find the right partner. So. Mike, any thoughts? Yeah, I think, I think ours was, you know, number one by far was, um, you know, kind of protecting my family. Um, you know, we had, we had grown our business with debt quite a bit of debt, um, a lot of debt. Uh, <laughs> one of the first things Bigelow suggested is taking on more debt. Um, <laughs> and stupidly, we did. Uh, so, yeah, we, we had, uh, I don't know, seven, eight million dollars worth of debt with, you know, personal guarantees, you know, out the yin-yang. So, um, you know, we, we you, you, you know, it all makes sense when you're doing it. And as you're building it, you have to do it. And as you see the opportunity, you say, oh, you, you can't afford not to do it. And, and as we were growing across Massachusetts and trying to go more regionally, we knew the opportunity was sitting there. And as, as, as you were just explaining, once we looked at it with Bigelow, we realized, oh, my God, the opportunity is even bigger than we thought. Uh, but then we realized, do I really want to have, you know, 10 or 15 million of debt, you know, and I... I'd like to live in my house for a little bit longer and drive a car every once in a while. And uh, so we, that's when we realized, you know, okay, if we can maybe run this thing without killing myself and protect the family, that was by far the number one thing we, we set out to do, and we, we achieved that. So, Yeah, so it's interesting, though, because you, you, several of you kind of express it almost as a fear, what you were afraid of. Mm -hmm. rather than a positive of what was important to, to get. I think Jay may be the exception, though, that you had a very clear outline of what, what would, you know, success would look like. Um, remember, Steve, it's not fashionable to say that money's important to you. True, true. I hear you on that. So, <laughs> so, so let's call it freedom. Let's use the word freedom. Right. I think, Rob, when he showed that um, chart of what the survey respondents had said was most important, and we do talk a lot about freedom uh, at Bigelow, and it's, it's freeing the entrepreneur to do things they want to do, and, and sometimes economic freedom helps that. 
Role freedom helps that. But we also talk about freeing the company to, to do what the company can do, right? If the right. owner's maybe holding it back, and I think, Chet, you kind of alluded to that, Mike, you just did. Mm -hmm. um, how important was role freedom for you, though? Personal freedom. Uh, well, I when, when we started um, this process, I was busy. I was engaged in the business. I had things I was doing, and I sort of imagined that I would continue to do those things. And um, I was warned not to um, put myself in a position where I was um, trapped. And um, because, um, you know, I, Rob and Pete said, you know, once it's not yours anymore, you're probably going to feel a little differently about what your role is. And I had a friend who said to me, everybody's looking at you. And then when the ink is dry, they're going to go like this. And you're going to be like, hey, does anybody care what I think? Yeah. Not really. Yeah. So um, it's, um, that takes yeah. some getting used to. And um, I think that um, in hindsight, I feel so much better having given myself that option of having no role um, at the end of the day. It's hard to get used to, very hard. It takes a long time, but I would rather own that and just deal with the sort of separation anxiety from my business than to feel like I'm beholden to somebody else and sort of be a shill for Vermont Creamery, if you will, you know. Um, but you told me last night yeah. how busy you are, and when you oh, listed yeah. out all the things that you're doing to keep you busy, we laughed about you probably weren't doing any of those things prior to the transaction. Yeah, I wouldn't have any have time. time to work now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, so Chet, your role changed. Yeah, I mean, we're, we, uh, again, it's one of those things that you, you, uh, your fears drive some of these decision processes because dealing with the evil vulture capital community and all the, mm -hmm. all the things that you think about that. Your uh, new partner, yeah. Yeah, yeah your new partner, right? <laughs> and it sounds all great when everybody's smiling and shaking hands and having champagne celebrating the deal, and then you wonder what's going to happen the next day, right? Um, so, but I think that the, the personal freedom thing was a big driver for both Ken and I, uh, and I think it was more from the point of view is we both really, it's both of us are very liberal artsy kind of people. We were in MBAs and all this stuff and ended up uh, owning a technology company, and, uh, and we both have been serial entrepreneur type people. And it's like, we love it, and that's what we do, we're driven to it, but at the same time, if you ask us, it's like, that's not who we are. That's just like a small piece of what we are. So this thing t starts taking a life over at some point in time. So the personal freedom thing is just that it, it, it swallows so much of your being up that you feel like you're not really um, fulfilling the other things you're on this planet for. So it takes up so much of that space. And then until you start making some, uh, some space for that, or a little bit more of a vacuum, so that's how the stuff can emerge organically and on what you want. You know it's driving you at some level to do that. So I think when it's, that becomes even more, uh, I think, front, in front of you when the things that, you, you know, we're all adrenaline junkies that do this, right? The risk takers that, yeah, even though I've got my house on the line, there's a certain part of that that is like, it's, it's, it's you know, part of what we're wired for. and. And, it, and it's exciting, especially when, when they come up all the right numbers on the cards, you know, and you're able to do something with that. But the, I think what we started realizing, the both of us, is for that next double down thing I was telling about, is that I don't think we would have enjoyed that as much 
as the ride to get to where we were. Okay. And so we really did kind of that, that thing, you know what, this may not be as much fun as it has been. In fact, some aspects of it aren't so much fun now. So you have to listen to those things. Uh, you can't be dr driven by all of the status, power, and the uh, adrenaline side, side of that and, and forget about those other things that are starting to emerge. You have to listen to those things. And also, as you were saying, what's right for the business. If you start making decisions differently that aren't, that are more driven by your personality, which got you there to begin with, but yep. had some positive, net positive things there, that starts impacting all the other stakeholders in that because you're starting editing it out. It's like that curve where it says you're going to start becoming risk averse. Yep. You start realizing, well, a huge amount of my net worth is involved in this business now. It's, it's like Mike yeah. said, right? You exactly. bet the farm and yeah. the farm's with us. Yeah, you, so you, all those things start driving, start driving the decisions and start taking away the opportunity which you work so hard to get to. Yep. It's one of those things that um, you work hard for that uh, and it's, it falls into that category, be careful what you wish for, you might get it kind of thing, right? Yep. When it's there in front of you, all of a sudden you've done, you have achieved it. Yep. And you have to do something with that. So Jay, you were very, very deliberate about having freedom from, from, from Rapid and you, yes. you made some battlefield promotions you know, yes. early on Thank to, you, Pete. to uh, yeah, with Pete's guidance to, to, to be able to exit stage right immediately uh, and, and work on paperless parts. So, so you were quite intentional. It's with great dread I'm going to look at Mike now and say, Mike, what's, what's your role been since the uh, transaction? <laughs> I was a dumb one, I guess. So. Um, you didn't yeah. get yourself terminated, did you? So if I, answered that, I, if, if I answered that question, I guess the personal freedom thing wasn't very important. Um, yeah, I'm still there. And uh, I think it is a little different in the sense um, that I, I originally went out to raise equity, right? We, we, we were looking for a new bank, basically. Uh, I had full intentions of continuing to build the business, and I didn't anticipate ever selling or selling to a strategic. And uh, that took an adjustment period for me to think about the fact that, um, wow, you know, selling to equity, you know, giving up 51%, I probably have less control there than ultimately the strategic I sold to. I have literally complete freedom that I've had more freedom than I had, you know, three years prior to selling because uh, it's someone else's capital, and uh, <laughs> and as long as I'm good at uh, delivering on the investment, and we just keep doing it. So um, that part of it uh, is the reason I'm still there. You know, it's 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 a, it's a different job, but it's very very similar. And you don't have someone walking in every day saying you're not important anymore, or you can't do this anymore, or I, I can still do those things. And, and somewhat similar great. to what Allison was talking about, the, the, the company you teamed up with didn't do what you do. Yeah. So you were an additional yeah. leg to the stool. and Third leg of the stool, and, and, and they still don't know what we do. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to keep it that way as long as possible. <laughs> Seriously, it's unbelievable. They are clueless. Uh, You've kind of gone to the dark side, right? You, you, uh, yeah. They don't you know. know. Anakin, Anakin Skywalker, and now you're like Darth Vader. <laughs> um, so, so, Jay, though, do you think differently, as you think about paperless parts now, having gone through the experience with Rapid, quite intentionally, you know, in, in, in mm -hmm. some respects, do you, does, does your experience with Rapid make you think differently now about paperless parts? And the, the role you play there is very different? Oh, absolutely. Yep. I, Tell us more about that, then. So I was a... Uh, single owner operator, no partners, and at Rapid there are four other co-founders, and the heavy lifting is done by the other four. I participate in different capacities at roughly a day a week, so I 
this is a software company. It's, it's a grind and it's a young man's game. So, and those are, I, I just don't have the same drive anymore at my age. And I think I recognize that, but I still wanted to participate. And I'm feeding off of the energy of these uh, 30 year olds. So it's a lot of fun. Good, good. Let's, it's um, kind of interesting when you're in a technology company and, and you never think about it this way. One day I realized I was the oldest guy in the company. Yeah. And it was like, how'd that happen? Yeah, I'm the oldest guy. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk a bit about communication and, and this concept of confidentiality. Alison, you know, that was kind of something you said was very, very important to you, the kind of the narrative of how this was going to play out and everything you'd, you'd put into the business and how it would be perceived. W w was the narrative important to, to everybody? The communication of, you know, how, how, how this transaction is going to be communicated internally, externally? My family? Yeah, I think, um, you know, for me, the communication piece that I w became more worried about as it got to that day was, you know, most of, all, all of our clients are effectively nonprofits. And, um, you know, you've got this, this guy who's built this business and uh, kind of they viewed us as, uh, you know, we're solving people's problems for these nonprofits and now we're turning around and, and selling for a boatload of money. And um, mm -hmm. that, and to a public, which is even scarier because then they think, well, all we care about now is money. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, we've been fighting that since that day. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's an ongoing battle, right? To, to prove that you still have a mission and, a, and, a, and you have a strategy and a vision, um, and it's not all about making the quarterly numbers work. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I was very worried about that. And early on, it was it was right in front of us. Um, and now it's just kind of uh, when you go out to negotiate a new contract, they're thinking about you know, what you are and what you're doing with the money. So, um, I think this is where. Um the Bigelow process. I don't want to sound like an advertisement to you guys. I told you not to on the phone. Because I really, because I really wanted to uh, just run Rob down the entire time. Okay. Here, but, you know, but, uh, but I think the, the, the really the, um, I, the start of that for us was uh, we were such a small, we had such a small management, which basically my partner and I were it, and then we had department heads. So very flat organization. Financially, everybody was in the dark. You know, and I was the one juggling all the balls to see where the priorities were for um, investing in the company. So it was very closely held information. Um, um, it was the mushroom theory of management, right? Keep them in the dark and feed them whatever, right? So uh, the, uh, when we had to make that transition and, and become more transparent, there was a lot of concerns about how that would be received by people who were not privy to that information and have context for it, right? And so the, the advice in, that we uh, received in that, and the counseling really, because you guys really, for a lot of our process, I felt they were, it was more counseling involved than business advice at times. But um, the, that really was in, uh, a very important, um, both get, getting it started, making us at ease with how this communication process is gonna unfold, and just the, the amount of experience that we knew we were relying on, that this is what you guys do every day, and we don't and making that, that transition from point A to point B. And it went swimmingly, it really did. Um, and in terms of what got communicated and when and why. Um, and we had, I can't even think of a stumble uh, that we had. And what was really cool is that there was a continuity between that and our new investor, Serent Capital, that they were also 
used to doing that. So they picked the ball up and then all the stakeholders from the transaction on forward communication strategy was just perfect. So customers, employees, all the stakeholders were, were treated very, very well in terms of that. So I was very happy with that. And I had a lot of fears about that going way off the rails. And, and talk about a bit about the process of bringing the management team in, into the loop on what you were thinking about doing. You know, you hired Bigelow and, you know, how, how did that play out for you? So um, for us, we had um, a team of three, my business partner, Bob, and our company president, Adeline. Mm -hmm. And so the three of us um, sort of evaluated. At, every year we'd sort of get together and say, okay, what are we doing this year? Are we going to go to market? Are we not? You know, um, thinking about these things. Um, we brought the management team in very early on. Um, we needed to um, write a growth plan. We needed our um, marketing director to, um, you know, gather all that data and really um, put it out there. And. Um, so, you know, our, our finance department, they had to do all the due diligence, everything that for, for, the, for the transaction. Um, and they had to get used to the idea that things were going to change. Um, and it was, I think, a really great strategy because, or maybe, <laughs> maybe not, because um, we put Adeline out there to do the growth plan. She would go with Rob and, uh, and uh, you know, present to these buyers because she was the future. She was really who they were buying. Back to and part the management of the team. deliberate yes. role to have you not be trapped. Right, yeah. right. And um, so, and the management team had to believe in the growth plan and present that. And I think that was a really important tactic, you know, that we used. Um, and it wasn't such a shock for them on the day of the, of the sale. I mean, if you can at least get your management team sort of get through that, then you've got your employees and all your customers. And the one thing that I, that I did um, uh, for, on the day of the sale was I wrote a personal blog post um, and for our social media. And it was, did two things. For me personally, it, you know, we say in PR, if you're explaining, you're losing. And so we wanted to be right up front and answer a bunch of questions that we were gonna be asked right up front. And um, it was very personal, and I think people appreciated that. Our customers appreciated that. Um, and we didn't get nearly the blowback that I was afraid that we would get um, because yep. we, were, we were honest. Yep. So. It was a really surprising process because the people who were our key um, people in the company dedicated over many, many years that we elevated to these roles. And then they were responsible for uh, doing the presentations to potential um, uh, investors. And my initial uh, concern was, boy, I hope they're up to the task. You know, I'm, I felt like I was kind of, you know, uh, setting them up for something, you know. But they surprised both Ken and I tremendously, and we, we were just beaming at, how much they rose to the task, and how much belief they had in what it is that we had created. It was just an amazing process, and a very validating process for Ken and I, that, that what we had given to uh, these people, and, and it wasn't a traditional sense, it was much more like, say, closely held 
interpersonal kind of thing than just cold, this is your title and this is your office and this is a corporate chart kind of thing. So when they started uh, uh, growing to it, to see a sh very quick transition in people who then could stand on their feet on their own, it was sort of like parent-child kind of thing. It was like, wow, you know, I just pushed them out the door and they just stood up and they're, now they're flying. Yeah. And uh, that was a remarkable uh, and very rewarding uh, thing to witness and be part of and to see them go, go on further than that, some of them more famously than others at this point. So. <laughs> Jay, any thoughts? You, you kind of had a different experience there, right, because we moved so quickly with, with right. Proto. So we were already dancing with the acquirer, and we were engaged in a partnership which was successful, and they wanted to move to the point of acquiring us. And so the management team was engaged from the get-go, what we quickly realized is that we were going to get eaten alive. They were a public company, and we were way over the, skip, the tips of our skis there. So we needed some professional help, and not just to be acquired by Proto Labs, but are they the right company to acquire us? And just the services that you do every day. Uh, this was our first transaction, so it was a team, definitely a, a team decision to engage with, with you folks. Yeah, I, I, I reflect back on that, though, and, and, and we've talked about this, that you know, if only we'd had another month to get things ready, right? But things were moving so quick. Right. You know, a bit of practice with right. the team. It would have been much better to, I, I guess I didn't think it was going to happen. <laughs> so... <laughs> And then it became reality. It's like, oh, shit. <laughs> so, yeah. it definitely, uh, if one of the things that uh, if I had to do over is I would have engaged with Bigelow sooner. Yeah. yeah. Mike, any thoughts? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the process of bringing that team together early, as early as possible, and I know we've talked about this many times, and it's definitely a, a Bigelow belief that that group kind of, uh, atmosphere and you, you're not you're not doing this alone you, you know certainly Bigelow takes you through every last step but um, I felt great that my management team understood exactly what what drove us to to engage with you guys and what's driving the transaction and where we're trying to get and again we we set out to raise capital I mean there wasn't a bank left that we hadn't knocked on their door so um, my team knew it was this is we're doing this for the right reasons the the part when you you're, you know, the ultimate acquirer does change the tune a little bit when you end up with a strategic, you, you, you know, the team was concerned that they'd get broken up. Um, you know, in the first two years, our, our team was exactly the same. Uh, in fact, we added to it. So, um, but I do think that if I didn't have them on board from day one, and I kind of did this in a vacuum behind the scenes with the intent of staying around, that would have added all types of anxiety post-closing that would have probably blown the thing up later on. Yeah. So that was a really important move. Yeah. So, so you know, we, we were talking about this session being lessons, um, uh, learnings and unlearnings. Um, w what was the thing that surprised you the most? You, you talked about how much work was involved. Um, what, what, what surprised you the most of, looking back now on the transaction process? I think that uh, 
we had more value than we thought we had. The validation in the process, um, when you have somebody outside your bubble um, come in and, and they, they start the due diligence, or even the first round with, with you guys, and having, having somebody outside say, no, you guys have really created something special here. This is really cool. And you, you don't hear that in any other way. I mean, obviously, the, the immediate reward is how much uh, revenue you get, right? That's, that's a sort of feedback, right? But it's different when you're having uh, people, industry professionals and people, and then potential investors giving you feedback on what your decision processes over 16 years have accumulated to be. And I think that surprised us. We weren't even remotely um, uh, prepared for that kind of validation because we were, we were looking at all our de deficits continually. Uh, mm. So that, that was probably one of the biggest surprises. And then that also uh, manifested itself in the interest that was presented in the company through Rob's hard work and um, all of that as well. Stop being nice to him there. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't supposed to happen. <laughs> But that's the concept, I mean, I think back to, to Stephen Pinker, though, and that's yeah. the idea of kind of you're living in the gap or you're living in the gain. Right. Yeah. Right? And, and, I, yeah. and I think, yeah. unfortunately for a lot of EOMs, they kind of live in the, the gap because they're always looking but at no, the horizon is getting further out, right? You know, you want to get to $5 million and then all of a sudden you're, you know, $20 million, right? So it's, uh, it's interesting. What's, what surprised you the most? Uh, I was surprised at how quickly I really cherished the freedom. Interesting. And, um, you know, because you do something for three plus decades and it's your baby and you're completely, you know, involved in it. And of course the fear is that, well, if I don't have my business, I'll lose my identity. I mean, who am I going to be, you know? And you find that there's a whole other person that um, has sort of a second life, you know? And um, so that was, that was a wonderful relevant uh, revelation. Um, I think also in, um, I, I found that in the latter years of the company, running the company or having the company, um, my role was very fuzzy and um, I wasn't really, um, I wasn't getting any real satisfaction. Um, it sort of felt like I was going through the motions and I was kind of the rainmaker of new business development. And it was kind of boring. And um, so selling the business, cutting, you know, not having a continued role in it for me was very poignant because it really validated who I was as an entrepreneur and a founder, not as an owner-manager, because I really wasn't running the business. We had people doing all that, right. you know. So um, I've been able to sort of craft um, an identity and a role for others um, in in that role, if you will. So it's it's it wasn't anything that I really anticipated, and it's been very refreshing. And, and Jay, I think that's kind of similar. I think of you when I hear Allison say that, because I remember you saying to to Vicky at Proto Labs, you know, I've, I've kind of you know had fun getting the kid, the kid, the company through high school, but in, somebody else needs to pay for the kid to go to college now. Mm -hmm. And yeah. So it's, did you have a similar experience that things became so less fun as it got bigger? The, yes, and I'll frame it in a strategic coach way. As Dan Sullivan says there's three types of people, those who make it up, those who make it real, and those who make it recur. And I'm a make it up guy. I had a really good make it real team, but 
we weren't that good at making it recur, and Proto Labs is great at making it recur. And I said, you know, I'm really holding back the company mm -hmm. by not giving it the best chance it could with somebody who has those skill sets. Right. And that's what they're able to do. So, but I will say in terms of surprises, uh, there were two that I can point out. One is that Proto Labs is about seven times or was seven times the size of Rapid Public Company. And I was really surprised how bad they were at transactions. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess you know, I probably put a public company on a pedestal, and, but I look back and my team was as good, if not better, in every role, except perhaps the recur stuff, as Proto Labs. We, we had a really, really good team, and I'm proud of what we were able to build over the years. So um, it's a different kind of validation, right? Validation. Yeah. yeah. They really yeah. suck. <laughs> we're <Well>, good. <laughs> yeah. It, and, and there were things that they, uh, I think, I forget what you said, but you know, we were doing that they were like, wow, we, we want to do that. And it, mm. um, the other part was there, I had some small uh, stakeholders, equity holders, and I hadn't realized how important a transaction to, to have it be completed was for them, how important the money that they would get from the transaction would it impact their lives and change their lives. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of pressure, and I guess the, the pressure was what surprised me from them because, of course, they're looking out for their own self-interest, and that transaction was going to change their lives. So uh, it was subtle, uh, not real overt, but uh, it was definitely there. That's fun. Because yeah. you had some smaller shareholders too, right? Yeah, we that did. had been with, you know, helped you out a while back, right? Yeah, we were. I, I, one of them sent this sort of funny story. Chico Lager, who was president of Ben and Jerry's at the time, he said, Yeah, I'll get Ben in and, you know, we'll, we'll give you 10 grand. And um, he wrote an email to all the shareholders saying, Yeah, when we put our money in, the company had $150 in cash. We were scheduled to lose $20,000. I think we were about 16000 in sales. You know, it was just pathetic, right? And then they disappeared. You know, we'd, we'd send them distributions every year. And I remember we had a meeting with the shareholders. And, um, you know, we were sort of going through this thing. And they're like, they're like... And then um, they said, and, um, you know, this is what we're going we're gonna to sell the business for. And they were sort of like, <laughs> 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 like, we were supposed to lose that money, right? So it was, that was one of the most gratifying It was moments. fun, I'm sure. Oh, so much fun. And also giving bonuses to the employees. Was Rob doing the presentation? <laughs> That's I a familiar position for people. Right. They, they would sort of cat and mouse. It, you know, <laughs> so... Um, did you have a destination in mind? I don't get the sense that you had a destination about what you knew you were going to do post-closing. Does that emerge afterwards? You think about Pete's, you know, hibernation. I think I'm still in hibernation. Yeah. But I was, you know, one of the things that happens, and I'm sure Jan, this happens to you in Vermont. Everybody knows everyone, and if you're a woman hmm. manufactured, every board's like. Bleh. You know, they want you, and, um, and, and then, of course, they think you're going to be the lead gift in their capital campaign, so that's great. Um, and so, uh, yeah, many, many board chair opportunities um, just pop up like mushrooms, 
and um, so it's been important to try to just keep all those things. No one to say bay. no. Um, but it has been a lot of fun to, um, you know, have in, you know speak with struggling food entrepreneurs, women business owners. I mean, that's been really um, an interesting role that um, is has emerged. Yeah. What do you feel in your time, Richard? Well. It's interesting. I, I wouldn't really term post-close as hibernation. It was more like rehabilitation for me, you know, <laughs> after been through what we'd been through. Um, so trying to get back to, to a sense of what it was like to, what's the new normal? What, what is actually after the smoke clears on this? Because I think there's a lot of psychic healing that goes on. And I mean, you've taken some dings on a lot of levels, uh, being in the, in the hub of the wagon wheel in, in terms of being on transaction. And so I think that took some time. And then I, I realized that for myself personally, I, I think I've always been a hibernator. So there's, you know, it's, it's, I'm back to where I like being, which is um, kind of uh, a different groove in life, you know? And so that, for me, it's uh, allowing myself to um, experience those things that all the other distractions pushed out of the way for a while. And never knew I was gonna do what I was doing when I grew up, you know? I have a, a very long story of a, an individual that I, I ran into in my early 20s. I was doing some contract work for the Chamber of Commerce in Portland, Maine, and this guy, his name was Scott Hutchinson, he used to be the president of Key Bank. And I found myself in his penthouse office at 21 years old, because everybody else in the committee went someplace else, and I'm standing there, you know, sitting in, in his office with this guy, completely terrified, uh, in this mahogany wall office at the top of the biggest building in Portland, Maine. And so he starts going on this long talk about his, he's getting ready to retire at that time. And so it was a rather long talk, but he, went, he walked me through every stage of becoming the bank president, basically. <laughs> when he came back from World War II or something, he uh, started out as a bank teller. And he went through every one of those stages and every one of those promotions he got, he said, he accepted and said, well, let's do until something better comes along. He says, now I'm retiring. He says, I, want, I don't know what I'm going to do when I grow up. You know? yeah. So I kind of, that was one of those lessons that you hear from somebody that you have this image about where they got, how they got there to say, well, that's pretty interesting kind of perspective on a whole arc in somebody's professional career. Extremely esteemed and respected individual. And he still didn't know what he was going to do when he grew up and he was you know, retiring from a bank. So I think that that kind of stuff has always been part of my makeup where I didn't really, get, even though you can't help but get invested in the business and all, the, all that adrenaline junkie stuff that goes with that and, and it's flattering to be the, the head honcho and all of that status wise and all of that. But uh, it, it never really um, became so much of a part of me that I, I missed it when it was gone. What I missed was the level of interaction and mental simulation that goes on of having to ask or answer a thousand questions a day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so when that space went away, then what do you occupy that mm -hmm. with? Yeah. I read a lot. <laughs> but it's mm. And Jay, you're, you're busy with one day a week, at least with paperless. What else are you doing? Oh, God. <laughs> well, I would say uh, I'm cleaning up the mess of all the things that I didn't take care of <laughs> while I was yeah. being uh, an entrepreneur, owner, manager. Uh, I've got some physical goals, so uh, I'll throw it out there. I want to be the. This is good. Uh, uh, I want to be the 400 meter national champion in my age group next year, 55 to 59. So nice. I'm working on that. You just, you just did regional qualifies and you got through, yeah. right? Yeah, I qualified for next year. So started this morning. As, huh? it's, it's funny. Thank you. 
you know, of course your kids humble you and she's like, my daughter says, oh, so you want to be the fastest old guy. <laughs> uh, I, I guess I, uh, I, the realization phase happened during the sale of the company. I have not hibernated and I'm full into experimentation. I'm working with some other entrepreneurs and i just trying to figure out what I want to want to be when I grow up. But uh, there's, I will say, maybe another, sort of another surprise. After you sell the business, you, as, as Allison said, you're in demand and you, all of a sudden there's all these opportunities that come to you that you, and you're, and you're no different, but except the fact that you've gone through a capital event and but there are a lot of opportunities now that come your way and it's up to you to say yes or no and, and figure out which ones match what you think you want to do. Mm-hmm. What's your plan to get terminated, Mike? Trying every day. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, I don't have a plan yet. I, I mean, I think it's, I, I still have work to be done. We were talking about this last night at dinner. Um, I really feel like I made a commitment to, to build it the way that we planned, and we're probably 80% there, 90% there to executing on the initial plan that we put together. And so I think when I get to that point, I feel like it can, it can run and not just be kind of swallowed up within a large public and kind of lose its way, then, um, you know, I'm definitely looking forward to other opportunities. It's just, I just, I feel like I have that commitment. I have to finish it. Interesting. Um, I guess what I would just add that, um, it's really important to just embrace the chaos of feeling not relevant or at loose ends. Yeah. Some days you wake up and it feels fine, and other days you wake up and you say, what am I doing? <laughs> you know? And you just got to say, okay, it's okay. You know, sold the business. Not many people get to do that. That's yeah. a good thing. Yeah. You got to just keep reminding yourself of that stuff. And then eventually, you know, these things start to happen. So, Well, I'm going to open it up to the floor. I'm sure there's a ton of questions out here, and we've got the guys with the, with the Cube. cubes. Um, so if people want to jump in and ask some questions, Cam? Does this work? Okay. First, first of all, congratulations to all of you guys, and thank you for sharing your stories. Allison, I'm curious how you told the story on that blog post. Ah, um, well, you'll, you could find it on our um, website if you want to read it. Um, I basically was very straightforward and said today, you know, this is what's happening today. Today we um, announced that we sold our business to Land Lakes. And so I kind of went through the criteria and, and the process, um, what was important to us, what we had created. You know, I really wanted to state the legacy. And because when you sell... You really can't expect, it, it's unrealistic to expect the next owner to preserve your legacy. It's just, it's probably not going to, parts of it will happen, but it's not going to happen completely. So I wanted to sort of put that in writing. Um, and, and also as a reminder to our employees and our management team and, you know, the, the company um, culture, um, what we had created and what we what we left here this is what we created here's what we we've given to you 
and um, hope it goes, goes well. And, you know, to really explain, we didn't want to go out and borrow another $10 million at age 57 and 60. You know, <laughs> it, it wasn't going to happen. And people go, oh, yeah, I get that. Yeah, you don't want to do that. But their initial reaction is sort of feeling abandoned. You sold out. That's really um, so. Uh, check it out. It's on. It's on the website. Well, I'm. Uh, I'm recognizing that we have this year some spouses in the room. Sure. And um, Don and Heather. I don't think the other two spouses are here. Not Can Can you two reflect a bit? on what you saw your partner going through, through this exercise. Um, what, were the, what was the greatest challenge for Allison? What was the, what was the um, kind of the advice you would give as a silent partner, Don? Well, I don't know where Don is. Silent? Right here. There you are. <laughs> <laughs> okay, not so silent. I... Well. <laughs> and then Heather, be thinking, because I have the same questions hey. for you. Amory's over there. Oh, I'm sorry. Amory, this is your chance, Amory. I knew I should have taken that bathroom break. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think uh, Allison's authenticity really came through. You know, all of you have stuff. In Pinker's book, he talked about have we reached peak stuff, like peak oil? Have we, have we started to to diminish the amount of stuff that we need or acquire or whatever. So these transactions are all about stuff, but it's not, it's relationships. That's what you guys all have that's so uh, amazing and unique, I think. And what I learned about Allison in the deal was, I was really nervous that once she lost the company, the stuff, the the part of her identity that gave her purpose and drive and a reason for getting up every day and all that stuff, that she would, um, she'd really miss it. And she hasn't, she's blossomed as a person who has so many other things that were kind of obscured by the stuff, by this great cheese. I'm not diminishing the quality of the cheese, but <laughs> she as a human being, is amazing, and she's going right through your stages, Pete. I mean, she, she thinks she's in hibernation still. She's beyond that. She's got a lot to give uh, young women who want to know, how do you do this with authenticity and grace? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Let's go to Anne-Marie next. With, Ryan's got the mic, and then we'll come over to Heather. <laughs> Um, it was definitely quite a process to go through. Um, both of our daughters are out of the house, so it was just us. And um, for me, I just had a lot of concerns about his health just because it is a nonstop process. Um, I had no idea how complicated it was. But reading Enterprise Value as a spouse was really helpful. Mm -hmm. um, so I could mm -hmm. kind of understand at least a little bit better what he was going through and then just... Um, the importance and how carefully he went through all the team members that were around him, you know, from Bigelow and the accountants and the attorneys and just everything that was touched had to go through him as well. So it was just absolutely overwhelming. Um, but we did what the book suggested and a few weeks after he retired, we did our uh, off-site planning session for the future and uh, thought about what, what do our next steps, what are they gonna look like? 
um, and then spending a lot of time focusing on just health and resting and relaxation and seeing what's, what's next. Um, and then also dealing with some of the grieving process because as Chet mentioned, a lot of these people we've known for years yeah. and weddings, funerals, babies, you know, all these different changes and so being able to reward them like he and Ken did and seeing what that meant to them and there were a lot of tears and goodbyes and then how do you make those kinds of separations but um, so they left not, not just um, an incredible legacy but uh, um, some incredible friendships and really meaningful relationships. So, and now we get to be together all the time. <laughs> uh, I would agree with what the others have said. Um, I think um, for, for you, we're, we're, he's, Mike is still, as he said, waiting for this hibernation. Um, I think we definitely could not have done this without the advice of Bigelow and getting through uh, what seemed like forever, and I was telling the story um, last night at dinner that the closing date kept slipping, as it does, and uh, his birthday was the February 28th, so it was going to be that day, and then they said, okay, well, let's wait till the 1st, and of course, it was a leap year, so those agonizing <laughs> extra 24 hours after you've gone on this, like, roller coaster is not the right word, but hurricane, I like that, because you just don't know what's going to happen next, and um, you're not sure who's going to walk in the door that day or how the meetings went and, and so forth, but it is worth it and just buckle up and enjoy it. Thank you.